Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. Father, it is such a task, believing who you say we are. We have so many voices in our society. We have so many voices in our own uh, in our own heads that tell us other stories. They remind us of our past. They tell us of our present, where we still fail to, uh, to hit the mark. But you're telling us who we are. And so I pray in this next bit of time, Jesus, that our minds would be cleared to hear your voice, to sense your spirit, and to perhaps to be called into a a different story, another story. Thank you, Lord, for your patience. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you that we don't have to be perfect to come into your presence. We bless your name. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, welcome again. Uh, like Nathan said, uh, we are Hope Brooklyn. Our tagline is that wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Which well, is just another way of saying that you don't have to believe to belong. Um, we think that this Jesus story is pretty unique in the in cosmic history, but you might not, and that's cool. We are happy to have you just as you are. Uh, if you are joining us for the first time, we are in a series that we've been calling The Way of Jesus, as Nathan alluded to. We've been, uh, basically, the the premise of the series is simple. When we look at the story of Jesus, we see an abundance there. We see a life, a vitality and energy that we don't see elsewhere in other historical narratives. And then when we sort of consider why that's the case, uh, we're looking at uh, um, Erwin Schrodinger, who was a Nobel-winning physicist, and he said, how does a, a thing remain alive? It consumes, right? It eats, it drinks, it breathes. So whatever you consume, you metabolize. You transform that into energy. And if, if we're following the logic, if we see in Jesus a life that we haven't seen elsewhere, we want to ask the question, well, what did Jesus consume? What did he eat and drink and breathe that allowed him to have such a power in his story? And he tells us, he said he consumed the Father that his life, his energy came directly, exclusively from a relationship with God, the creator. And so we've been looking at different practices, different ways to do just that, to, uh, to enter into a relationship with the creator, to consume God so that we can metabolize a rest, a life, a power uh, that almost doesn't seem, or definitely doesn't seem like it comes from us, like our own. Two weeks ago, we talked about solitude and solitude sort of being the primary commitment. Uh, it's, it's less a practice as it is a commitment. It's a commitment to an intentional time and space to be with God. It's a commitment to an intentional time and space to have a conversation with God. And of course, uh, in the original, uh, uh, the original usage of that word conversation, it means a shared life, not just shared words. It's so much more going on in the conversation than just words. And we sort of hinted at what do you hear when you get in that intentional time and space with God? When you sort of listen to God? We sort of said, 
it, it's tough to describe because you have to just get there and experience it, but it's something akin to joy. Joy is the essence of the kingdom. I love the way Zadie Smith puts it. She writes, joy is the recognition of an almost intolerable beauty. I think that's right. It's the recognition of something so beautiful, almost painfully beautiful. And it's this, that we're alive, that we exist, that there is such a thing called friendship and family and work, that there is such a thing called community, that God is good and for us, that joy overwhelms our relationship. And so out of that solitude, out of that, out of that experience of joy, that shared life, then we talked about last week, all right, now there are tons of practices that, um, that fill the space, right? And the first and, and probably most important, most that we know is, is prayer, prayer. And we talked about prayer last week, but before we got into the words that we say in prayer, we sort of redefined it. We wanted to situate it into a new context. And that is this, Jesus is, is saying this. I'm not saying this, Jesus is saying this. Jesus says, hey, when you pray, I don't want you uh, to do it like hypocrites and think it's a performance. I don't want you to do it uh, like pagans and just babble different words, hoping you get the right, the secret password and think it's magic. Those are two wrong ways to pray. Why? Why are those wrong ways to pray? And they're gonna come into uh, our conversation today. They're wrong because they're zero sum. And both of those examples, you're viewing God as sort of this distant, cold uh, deity that you have to say the right words or you have to do the song and dance and then he gives you what you want. It's zero sum, it's transactional. And Jesus is saying that's not at all who the creator of the world is. The creator of the world is a good father. The creator of the world is a good parent, a good mother. You don't have to earn love. Love is not zero sum, it's exhaustive. I mean, I'm sorry, it's inexhaustive. Yeah, let's make sure we get that one right. Some of the parents are like, amen, yes, yes. Exhausted, what'd you say, exhausted? Is that what you said? It's inexhaustible. You don't earn it, you don't lose it. Why? Because the child did not choose to come into existence. The parent willed the child into existence. So there is something more fundamental in their relationship than what the child does or doesn't do, than whether the child performs or doesn't perform, knows the secret password or not. There's a deeper bond. And Jesus is saying, that is your creator. That is the mind, the, 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 the supernatural being that is behind all that is. That's the joy that we discover. So when you come, when you think about prayer, when you think about the words to say to God, Think along the lines of a father with children, a mother with children. Um, come into God's presence and do silly things, draw pictures, sing terrible songs, dance. Come as you are because God is not zero sum. That's a religious view of God. And as we talked about last week, and you can go listen to the podcast, religion might be one of the most demonic things because it gets us so close to truth, but it, it's so far away because it has nothing. Religion says it's all on us to get to God. And that's not at all what Jesus is about. You are never being invited into this place to join a church, ever. I am never gonna invite you to join Hope Brooklyn as a primary task. Your invitation is to come to Jesus. Your invitation is to enter into a relationship. And as we enter into a relationship with him, we learn from one another. But Jesus doesn't stop there, right? 
He says, when you pray, don't do it like this, do it like this. And don't do it like this, do it like this. And he sort of redefines the context. Your God is a good father. But then, then he proceeds to give us words to say. He does. And this is the prayer, even if you're like not a church person at all, you probably know this prayer. It's called the Lord's Prayer. It's in the Gospels. Uh, We're taught to pray it. Um, He gives us this form, this template. And this is what we read. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Prayer. That's the prayer that Jesus, that God in the flesh has given us to pray. Prayer in the Greek is the word prosukamai. Prosukamai, it's a compound word. Pros uh, is a preposition that means to or toward. It sort of has a direction associated. And ukamai means to want or to desire. So essentially, prayer is to direct your desires toward someone, something. To turn your wants toward God. Prayer is to ask God for things. At its simplest, it is. It's to ask your father for stuff. It's to unveil the desires of your heart toward a good parent. So then the question becomes, sort of building off of all of this as we've done, How does a child do that? How does a child ask their parent? How does a child direct the desires of their heart toward a good parent? And that's what we wanna look at in this prayer today. And really, I mean, there's so many things, there's so many sermons that could be preached out of this. This is just one. And I wanna just focus on three ways to do that. Three ways that a child directs the desires of his or her heart toward a good parent. The first way, audaciously. (laughs) Audaciously, that is to say, absolutely without tact. Children don't know what they're asking for. (laughs) They don't know what they're asking for. And here's where I get this. When, When you look at the prayer, what's so interesting, and again, keep in mind, this is Jesus who gives us this prayer. This is God in the flesh who says, when you talk to your father, talk like this. When you look at this prayer, every single verb is in the imperative form. For you grammar nerds, you already know what that means. For the non-grammar nerds, this is what it means. Uh, Imperative, it's like a a command, right? So we could say, uh, you are running, and I think that's indicative. Don't correct me, something like that. But if I wanted to make that an imperative, a command, I would say, run, right? I'm commanding you, you run. Them do that. That's an imperative, it's a command. Every single verb is imperative. Jesus is giving us permission to demand things of the Father. It's not a meek petition, right? There's no sense of like uh, protocol and how you approach God. Jesus is saying, come into God's presence as a child audaciously, without tact and command. So sanctify your name, hallow it. Let your kingdom come. 
Make your will be done. Give us our bread today. Forgive me. It is coming as you are to God and saying exactly what's on your heart. And you do that. You have permission to do that because before God is God, God is Father. Before God is the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent source of life, the ground, the ground spring of being. Before God is any of that. God in the flesh, Jesus says, think of God as Father. In the Greek, the first word of the prayer is pater, which means father. And here's the interesting thing about the Greek language. Um, man, there's more grammar than I realized in this. <laughs> interesting thing about the, the Greek language uh, is that it doesn't matter where the words are positioned in the sentence, like it does in English, right? Like you learn the subject comes first, he runs, runs is the verb, and then wherever he does the running, right? Subject, verb, whatever, subject, predicate, yeah, all that. In the Greek, it doesn't matter. They can go anywhere. So that means there's some lyrical nature happening. That means that the words that are positioned first should inform the way you think about the rest of the sentence. So for Jesus to say, when he teaches us the words to say to God, when he teaches us the words to say to a good parent, and he says, the first word you say is father. That means that we have to inform everything else about how we think about God through that word and what that word means. It feels audacious to demand things of God because we don't view God as father. We don't view God as a good parent. We view God as God, right? We view God almost in a, as a religious way of viewing it. That it's zero sum, that we have to do things to get into God's presence. That if I did the wrong things or I was in the wrong place this Saturday night, then I can't come into his presence. What good parent would say that? None. We have to discipline the way we think about the words through that name, that moniker, Father. This is something I kind of know about. Uh, I think I've mentioned before, my dad growing up, uh, and still, he works for the YMCA. So I remember when I was a kid uh, and I would go to summer camps and stuff, um, uh, TJ, that's what they called him, TJ, uh, he would sometimes walk around the, the branch. And my dad, he was the branch director. So basically, like, he was in charge of the entire branch. And everyone knew TJ, right? He was like the, the head honcho of, of the branch. But sometimes when we would walk around, and I'm like five or six, and uh, I'm in camp and I'm in line, I'd see him, and what would I do? I'd be like, Dad! And I'd run to him to give him a hug. And I could tell it put my counselors in an awkward position because <laughs> they, they like, they're in charge of my safety. So they should have said, Russell, come back, stay in line. But they didn't because Russell's dad is TJ. <laughs> so they're like, oh, what do I do here? Right? It's sort of like that. It's sort of like that. We, before we think of God as God, as branch director, God is father, God is mother, good parent that we can run to as we are. What's going on here in these, this, when a child asks their parent audaciously? Well, there's a reversing of our sense of ownership. There's a reversing of what we claim. Robert Coles, um, 
I was listening to a, a podcast of On Being, Robert Coles, he's a Harvard professor in child psychology, like Pulitzer Prize winner, um, has really studied the inner lives of children his entire career. And he talks about how children have no claim on the world. They don't claim the world. They have curiosity about the world. They have questions, deep questions. Their claim, they do have a claim, and the implicit claim of their lives is not on the world, but on their parents. They trust, they depend on their parents, and they explore the world. This is important, friends, because this is why there's no sense of proportion in what children ask for. Have you noticed that? Children don't get what, like, they don't understand the gravity of what they're asking for. In one breath, they'll ask for a bedtime story, and the next, they'll ask for NBA Finals tickets. And you're like, well, how about we go see a Brooklyn Nets game, because I can do that. Um, no disrespect to the Nets. Maybe just a little bit, I don't know. Yeah. There's no sense of proportion, right? A bedtime story and NBA Finals tickets, they're the same in their eyes. Why? Because they're not claiming the earth. They don't understand like the weight of what they're asking. What do they claim? They're claiming their trust of their parent. Their parent can do these things. Their parent is who they depend on. There's a, uh, there's a really simple book called A Praying Life that I I've been reading through recently. And um, the author talks about his mom. And his mom um, is this amazing lady who basically has been a missionary in some of the most ravaged countries in the world, her entire life, her entire life. And he, he called her one day and he said that he had just finished a book on prayer that he liked, except for one thing, that the author cautioned the readers against praying for trivial things, like finding parking spots and stuff. And he goes, mom, he told us not to pray about finding parking spots. And she laughed and she goes, well, how else will you find one? And, and it is funny, but there's also then he included in the book an email that she sent about prayer. And she goes, when you're in these, in these countries where you can't claim the earth, it's, there's no order, where there's bombings and wars. She goes, you walk outside your door and you pray for safety as you walk. And you go to the bathroom at night and you pray that the plumbing is still working and that it doesn't come up. You learn to pray for everything because you can't trust the earth. You can't trust your society, so you transfer your trust onto God. Do you see? You see how that works? It's almost the difference between needing things and wanting things. Children, they want the earth. They're curious about it. They want a bedtime story. They want NBA finals tickets. But they need their parents. We as adults, we've reversed that. We, we need the things we pray for and we're curious or skeptical about God. And Jesus is trying to take us back to that primal place as children where he says, look, need the Father and ask for everything. Want everything but need the Father. And I think when we sort of get into that space, then it starts to make sense even, uh, even when prayers seemingly go unanswered. See, many times I think when prayers go unanswered uh, and we're so 
broken and scarred by it, I wanna suggest gently, because it's been my story too, that I actually needed those things, not that I wanted them. I needed those things. And what Jesus is trying to say is, need, like a child, need your parent. Demand your parent and ask for things. And even when they don't come, as you imagine they should, in a sense, it doesn't break you, up, break you apart because you have your dependence, your trust is on the love of a good father. I love the way that George MacDonald writes it. He says, God owes himself to the creature he has made in his image. For so he has made him incapable of living without him. What's he writing? He's saying what we said earlier. A child does not choose to will themselves in existence. A child is brought into existence through the will of their parent. And as we know in this story, you and I, humans, we have the divine image in us. Therefore, we are able to make one claim in our, in our existence, one claim. Because we've been created to only live through the love of our father, we can claim that God be a good father. Demand that God give us what he owes us. And what does he owe us? Himself, his spirit, his presence, his love. And teach us what that looks like. But be a good mother to us. Be a good father. I did not choose to come into existence. You created me. So be that. I need you. And then let that discipline how I explore the world. See, if not, then prayer becomes zero sum where you're the dependable one and God is undependable. But if God is a good parent and his presence is most important, then you can explore your world. You can work in your world. You can ask everything. And even if it doesn't happen the way you expect, you still see his presence in it. You still see his hand. I promise you, you do. So demand that he gives you the fullness of himself. Pray audaciously. Don't lead us into temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. Pray audaciously. The second way a child asks their parent. First, audaciously without tact, no sense of proportion. Secondly, incessantly. <laughs> incessantly. See, this is interesting. If you were here with us last week, we, we read the, the preface to this prayer where Jesus was saying, don't pray like this, pray like this. Don't do this, do this. And he, and he says for each of those occurrences, why? Because God is a good father who knows what you need. He almost says like, don't worry about praying because your father knows precisely what you need, knows who you are. But then he gives us a prayer. <laughs> he gives us a template. Why? I wanna say it's because we have to learn to talk with God as father again. It doesn't come natural. I called you out last week for being boring and cynical. If you weren't here, well, you're also indicted in the call. You were called out for being boring and cynical. And we're boring and cynical because we've grown old, <laughs> because we've, we've claimed the earth and we're skeptical about, about a good father. But what I wanna suggest is, it's kind of not your fault. And it's not my fault. Because we are by nature, creatures separated from God. That is what the world we're born into. 
We're born into a world that is separated from God, that doesn't know God as father, but knows God as this religious deity that we have to placate through our sacrifices or whatever, through our good deeds, through our magic spells. That's what, that's what we know God as. So Jesus gives us a prayer to teach us to learn to pray incessantly, to learn to know God as Father. So then what does that mean, all right? If this is the form that we pray incessantly that teaches us, what do we learn from this form of prayer? I think two things primarily. The first is truthfulness. Truthfulness. As C.S. Lewis writes, we must lay before God what is in us, not what ought to be in us. It's not what a child does. Like a child doesn't have pretense. A child lays before their parent what is in them, not what they wish were in them. Who they are, not who they wish they were. And even if, if what's in them is that they wish they were someone else, the child lays that before the parent. So we read, give us our daily bread. We're gonna starve unless you do this. Forgive me. I made a mistake, but you're a good parent, so you have to. Your love is inexhaustible. Deliver me. There's almost like an embarrassing elementary nature to this conversation, right? Like the, you're asking for these embarrassing elementary things because you're learning to be truthful. We must bring before God not what we think God wants, but who we actually are. What is in us? Learning to be truthful and not saying it in a way that, that sort of like still relies on myself, but saying it fully. Um, Padrago Tuma is a Irish, like everything, is a theologian, he's an activist, he does incredible work. And he was talking about prayer and one of the, the, the prayers that, uh, in a group that he was talking with, um, where he was sort of getting this idea of you have to be truthful. And uh, one person sort of just looks up, they've been looking down and says, my prayer is that I'd like to laugh again. That's it. I think that the most truthful prayers have less words than what we're accustomed to. I think, I, I can't prove this, maybe if I you know, did a dissertation on it or did some research, but I think the more words we use, the more we hide ourselves from our Father. The most truthful prayers are those words that just come up straight from the inside. I wanna laugh again. I haven't laughed in a long time. There it is. Lay who you are before God. That's what we realize in this. The other thing we learn, we learn in this prayer by praying it incessantly that we have to be truthful. The other thing we learn is authority. We have authority, which is a scary, scary prospect. We demand boldly for audacious things. Jacques Ellul, he writes, prayer is the human's freedom within God's freedom. The human's freedom as reflection of God's freedom. The human's freedom exclusively received in Christ. The human's freedom, which is free obedience to God and which finds unique expression in childlike acts. What's he saying? He's saying there's this dual freedom happening that God makes things happen, but also we make things happen. By entering into relationship with the Father through Christ, we have a authority in the world. We are, 
we sort of have this dual freedom. Uh, Christina Cleveland writes that social psychologists have discovered that when we become close friends with someone, we literally expand our sense of self to include them in it. So as a result, we naturally incorporate their perspective into our perspective. Their resources become our resources and vice versa. Their failures become our failures and we take up their causes as if they were our own causes. In short, we identify with them and are changed as a result of relationship with them. There's this sense of when we enter in relationship with God, we're learning to understand his will for the world and we're both sharing. That's what's so remarkable This dual freedom works both ways. That as we sort of receive the resources of God, God receives the resources from us. God receives who we are. And we have biblical stories that talk about God seemingly being swayed by humans' prayers. We have those stories. There's a dual freedom. We are taught what it is to understand the Father's family, to understand the kingdom that is coming, to learn it, to enter into it. But now we have an authority that if God is precisely who he says, we have authority to step into that. And there's tons of examples of prayers like prophetic prayers and intercessory prayers and prayers for healing of the body. And I know some of that might terrify you. I do but it's happened, it's happened to me. And as we learn to listen, as we learn to surrender, as we learn to make that relationship with the Father, first and foremost, as we learn to see as he teaches us to see, we sort of live a life of the Spirit. We know that we have to pray for parking spots because how else will you find one? (laughs) We know that. We know that what is dependable is the Father, is Christ. And he cares so deeply for his world. He wants to speak so readily to you. Often, as we've said from the beginning, what Richard Rohr says, it's not about the presence of God. The presence of God is here. It's about awareness. We don't have awareness of God's voice. Why? Because we don't have a healthy line of communication with him. And the more we develop that line of communication, the more we see his voice, we see his spirit everywhere. Friends, we have expected far too little of the spirit's presence and power in us. Far too little. What would it look like if we expect a lot? Well, Jesus tells us. In John 4, he writes, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. And we've talked about that. If you're here and you're not sure about Jesus' claims about himself, cool. Look at the stories of what is attested that he did. Look at his actions, his works. There are things associated to him that aren't associated to others in the measure that they're associated. Believe those, start there. Very truly I tell you, and this is what is staggering. Whoever believes in me, and the better translation for that word believe is trust, not a cognitive belief, 
but a life that steps in faith, that enters a relationship. Whoever trusts in me will do the works I have been doing. Whoever trusts in me will do the works I have been doing. And they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. I told this story a while back, but I want to tell it again because I know we have some new faces here and we always need reminders. Um, there was a conference almost a year ago and one of the speakers was a woman named Eleanor Mumford and her and her husband, uh, they lead um, a, a movement of churches in the UK and they're uh, kind of, both of them, they're, they're, they're um, exemplars to me. I really um, admire them because you find that there can be two poles uh, in the church. You find one pole which sort of goes all in with uh, wanting to see spiritual phenomenon, but in the name of doing it, they kind of like shut off your brain and kind of do violence to the intellectual side of us that wants to think and to have knowledge. And then you find the other pole that just talks about how we think and sort of um, doesn't step into a life that is listening to the active voice of God of the Father today. But the Mumfords do both. Um, they are brilliant people. They are actually in one tradition of the church. And as she tells her story, uh, she goes, um, um, I had meningitis and I was very sick. And there was a group of, of local Christians and they wanted to come pray for me, to pray, pray for healing. And she was like, I did not want that because I knew what was gonna happen. I knew that they would come and lay sweaty, swarmy palms on me. And if you can picture like a, a British woman saying this, it's a lot better. Um, but uh, just picture me as a British woman, okay? Um, they would lay sweaty, swarmy palms on me. They'd invade my personal space. Um, and it would just, they'd, they'd speak in, in, in languages that I couldn't understand completely. It would just be awful. And she goes, and so I was like, what do we do? And her husband was like, well, let's just get it over with. Let's just do it. And they did. So they invited the group and they came and she goes, and that's exactly what happened. They came in, they laid sweaty, swarmy palms on me. Uh, they invaded my space. I didn't understand everything they said. It was terrible. Except I was healed of meningitis immediately. And then she was like, and I didn't know what to do with that. The short of it is she took a step. She made herself available to who this God who is a father who seeks to restore the kingdom, restore bodies, restore relationships, restore the way we think about ourselves. She stepped into that, that maybe God just wasn't a story in the past, though there is a story that leads us to truth. Maybe that story, the whole purpose of it was to lead us into a right relationship with him today, to step into what it looks like for the kingdom to be present in our lives and in the lives of those we interact with today. And then she started telling story after story and it was remarkable. And she addressed, which I think many of us in this room might be this, might be this person. She addressed those of us who kind of want to believe this but are afraid to believe it. And we're afraid 
because we've seen unanswered prayer and we've, we've been hurt by some of these prayers. I definitely have those stories. And, and she was asked, what happens like when you pray and it doesn't go the way you expect? And she goes, well, I, I get it, but with all you know, kindness, I would say, frankly, that's not my concern. How could she say that? What does that mean? She's saying she doesn't need the thing she's praying for to happen. That's what she's being invited to do, to claim authority, but she doesn't need it. She needs the Father's love. She wants these things. She wants people to know how deeply they're loved. She wants bodies to be healed. She wants marriages to be healed. She wants all those things, but she doesn't need them. See, often there's a story where the Pharisees who are like the pastors of the day, and they definitely don't like Jesus. And um, they're talking to Jesus, and they're like, give us a sign, and then we'll believe. And Jesus is like, no, I'm not going to give you a sign, because you need the sign to believe. Instead, when you know that you have a relationship with the Father, you won't need these things. You'll be able to ask for them recklessly, audaciously, incessantly, but you won't need them. And therefore, you'll see incredible things. But the, 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 the core of your life will be the relationship with the Father. So pray audaciously, pray incessantly, and lastly, pray selfishly. Pray selfishly. Martin Buber has a, has a, he's a theologian and he talks about how uh, the fundamental orientation to the world is twofold. I thou, which is you know, the old word for you, I thou or I it. That we can't be individuals that we relate with our surroundings either with yous or its. And if it's a you, if we relate with someone as a you, then it becomes what Christina Cleveland said earlier, this dual freedom. We incorporate them into our selfhood and they incorporate us into theirs, right? But when you look in the Lord's prayer that Jesus gives us, the only two persons involved are God and you. That's all you see. You're not really praying for others here. You're praying for God and you're praying for yourself. And I found this might be the toughest one. I found as I talk to people, you're actually really good at praying for others. You feel safe doing that, but you, you kind of freeze up and you hesitate when it comes to praying for yourself. Like praying truthfully for yourself. And when I push into why that's the case, when I push into my own heart, it's shame. I feel ashamed in some sense. I feel like I don't deserve to enter into God's presence. I feel like I've, I've seen prayers unanswered and it hurt me and I just don't wanna take that risk again. I feel embarrassed before God because I view him as God and not as a good father. There's some element of shame. And the thing about shame is that it's very visceral. It's a response in the body. It's a sense of unworthiness. I think even that shame is, is, is not um, that you've gone too far with your prayers, but in fact, we haven't gone far enough with them. We haven't been fully truthful. I think that, our, that the shame that comes from when, it thinks, when we think about asking selfishly for things is actually uh, the part of us that is more like the Pharisee that has sort of needed the prayers too much 
instead of needed God. But it's still real. That's the thing, it's still real. So why, how do we get past that shame? To ask God selfishly again, truthfully and selfishly. Well, I learned recently that uh, the Latin word persona is where we get person. It means face or mask. And it actually was a legal term when it was used. Uh, to, To have a persona was to have a face before the law, to have a voice before the law. Those of lowest station in society, they were considered non habens personum, not having a face before the law. Criminals, the destitute, women, non-citizens. These are people who did not have a face, a persona before the law. I think that's what shame ultimately is. It's feeling like I don't have a face or a voice before God. I don't have a right to make these claims. I have a fear to step boldly into some new reality. It's being more of a ghost than a real human. But this is when we have to remember that the one who gave us this prayer is Jesus. The one who taught us to pray like this is Jesus, is God who has come in the flesh. So when we read in Philippians 2, one of the earliest songs, worship songs we have in the church, where Paul says, he, talking about Jesus, he who was in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, emptied himself, and came and took the form of a servant. What's he saying? He's saying Jesus had a face a person before God and he gave it up and he came and took the form of the faceless. Jesus has become the face of the faceless. And because of that, because of that, we can hear through him the words that say, let me tell you who you are. You are a child before your father. Let me tell you what rights and authority you have. Let me tell you how to interact with God as Father because I have come and given you my face. I wanna invite the worship team back up and we're gonna do something. I'm gonna end with the story and then we're gonna do something together. Um, I had a professor in seminary who was trying to explain this concept the last one, to pray selfishly. And even when the words feel broken and imperfect, because we're learning what it is to call God Father again, even when it feels so hard to keep stepping into it, because Jesus, God has come to us and is teaching us what it is to have a face, is giving us his face. And he was trying to explain this concept. And my professor was a theologian and he was an incredible musician. And so he had someone from the class uh, who had no musical background come to the piano and he taught um, this person four notes and to play them over and over, the four notes. And the person did the best they could, but you could tell it was bad. Like there was no rhythm, there was no tempo, they messed up, they even like hit a wrong note once, as you would expect, because they're learning. 
And then my professor comes around the person and he stretches his arms out and he starts playing those four notes and improvising off of them. And it was the most beautiful melody I'd ever heard. And we all just like were choked up and started crying. Because his image was, this is the gospel. You have permission to start playing notes before God again. He's your father. You have permission to demand things, to pray selfishly, to feel that shame, to not run away from it, but to still step into it, to be truthful, to have authority, to pray audaciously. You have permission to start playing those notes again. And when you feel like you suck, as you will, Jesus, the face of God who has come to us, to the faceless ones, will stretch his arms around us and start improvising your prayers. And he'll create something that is staggering. So here's what I wanna invite us to do for the next minute. It's a form of prayer that might feel weird to you. It might feel audacious and bold. Pull out something to write on or pull out your phone or if you just wanna like reflect on it a little, maybe take a note or two and do this later. It's called dialogical prayer. It's quite simply a dialogue with God. And again, as I said earlier, if we consider it that the more words we have, probably the less God is speaking, that the truthful stuff is less words, I wanna take a moment and consider two primary questions. Where's the shame in your story? Where's the shame as it relates to coming before God as a child? Don't run away from it, don't avoid it, but name it. And then ask, what would Jesus say to you about it? As we do this, I encourage you, don't censor yourself. You'll, you'll be tempted to censor yourself. Don't even think about what you're writing. Go back to it later. That's why we have uh, discernment. That's why we have the community to discern these things. But if God is a good father and is close to us as the breath we breathe and wants to speak to us for those who are in Christ, then we can hear his voice. So we're gonna take a minute. I'm gonna pray and we're gonna take a minute. And I encourage you to think and reflect and see what God might bring up. Jesus, we know because you've given us permission to come before you, to come before the Father as a good parent, audaciously and incessantly over and over with authority and with truthfulness and selfishly to come before you in these ways. And it's scary to do that but we know that what we need more than anything is you. We know that you wanna to speak to us and give us yourself, or at least we're trying to trust that. So for every person in this room, wherever they may be in their relationship with you, or even if they don't have one, even if they're just curious or scared or skeptical, would you stir in their heart right now what it might look like. What it might look like for you to speak to them.
Here's what I feel like God is saying. For some of you in this room, your shame is located in your past. There's a sense that you don't really believe that God loves you. Because how could you? You don't even love yourself. The word of God, the word of your father is that he sees you. He sees everything. And he is so delighted with you. You are beautiful to him. That shame cannot hold you. Allow him in. Allow him to talk with you about it. And for others, I feel like this element of truthfulness is what's getting us. That maybe your heart truthfully feels skeptical. Awesome. Then speak that skepticism to God. Maybe your heart truthfully believes but is afraid to take a step. Great. Then fully lay that before your father. Whatever your heart truthfully feels, that is what you have permission to bring before Christ. So do it and see what you might receive in return. Jesus, we know it takes time to learn to talk to God as Father, to learn that relationship again, but we wanna open our hands a little bit more and receive what you have for us. So we praise you, teach us, give us one step. It's in your name we pray, amen. Thanks again for tuning in to this week's sermon. To find out more about the mission and ministry of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday worship and brunch, to subscribe to our other podcasts and lots more, visit us online at www.hopebrooklyn.org.